0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled The Role of CDC in AFM Surveillance. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast along with Rebecca Whitney. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download and via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, uh, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Janelle Ruth, Dr. Amisha Patel, and Dr. Benjamin Greenberg. Rebecca.
1: Dr. Janelle Ruth graduated from the UCSF-UC Berkeley Joint Medical Program in 2004 and UCSF Pediatric Residency Program in 2007. For the next three years, she practiced pediatric HIV and general tropical medicine in Malawi with the Baylor International Pediatric AIDS Initiative. She returned to the US to start the Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship with CDC in Atlanta in 2010. Her CDC experience has spanned food and waterborne outbreaks, cholera prevention in Haiti, to her current work in the Division of Viral Diseases as the program lead for acute flaccid myelitis since 2016. Dr. Manisha Patel is a medical officer with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She is the epidemiology team lead in the Division of Viral Diseases and oversees eight domestic viral programs, specifically measles, mumps, rubella, polio, acute flaccid myelitis, varicella, zoster, and cytomegalovirus. She maintains expertise in the epidemiology and immunology of viral vaccine-preventable diseases, which includes domestic surveillance, outbreak response and control, vaccine policy, and health communications. She provides care to pediatric patients at the Children's Hospital of Atlanta.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. And uh, Dr. Benjamin Greenberg received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Johns Hopkins University and his Master's degree in Molecular Microbiology and Immunology from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. He completed his residency in neurology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and then joined the faculty within the Division of Neuroimmunology. In January of 2009, he was recruited to the faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center where he was named Deputy Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Program and Director of the new Transverse Myelitis and Neuromyelitis Optica Program. Dr. Greenberg is recognized internationally as an expert in rare autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the central nervous system. He currently serves as Director of the Neurosciences Clinical Research Center and is a Cain Denius Foundation Scholar. Welcome, and thank you all for joining us today. Thanks. So uh, to, to start, um, I'd like to pose the first question uh, to Dr. Patel. Um, the early response by the CDC, by CDC to AFM was controversial for some parents. Um, would you like to comment about this?
2: And actually, before Dr. Patel chimes in, if it's okay, did you, I may just uh, step in and make a comment. So, um, uh, and I, I'm very uh, interested to hear uh, uh, Dr. Patel's assessment, but I, as having worked on this for uh, the last over five years and worked with a lot of uh, parents and families um, who've been affected by AFM and a lot of clinicians and researchers, um, I wanna put the, the question into a bit of context if I can, because I, I think there has been uh, a large amount of uh, frustration nationally on getting a handle on this entity uh, in its entirety. And as I've gotten uh, to work more closely with colleagues such as uh, Dr. Patel and Dr. Ruth at the CDC, um, I've had a perspective on what we nationally have done right and what we might've done better over time, uh, but I've learned a lot relative to the CDC in particular. and. I think a lot of the frustration early on uh, came in a couple different flavors. One was around uh, publicly ascribing causation, and we'll talk about that during the podcast of what's causing AFM, uh, recommendations around treatment, and then resource investments and surveillance. And as I've come to learn uh, much more than I ever did about our public health system in the United States, um, it's become pretty clear to me that there uh, is a huge need uh, to invest much more seriously as a nation in what we're doing from a public health perspective. Um, the, the CDC's uh, mission, which is to protect all of us from a whole host of different conditions, is uh, being pursued on a significantly under-resourced uh, budget. The individuals I've worked with there have been uh, incredibly dedicated, gifted, individuals uh, but are part of a process that integrates a national public health system with over 50 different states that have uh, local and state level public health agencies that have to be involved at every step of the way and so as we as a nation have not I would say nimbly responded uh, uh, to every public health issue that comes up I actually think it's impossible uh based on the way we are our resource i i think the group we have working are incredibly uh talented and dedicated folks but if you listened uh to the introduction dr patel is simultaneously overseeing uh afm measles and about six other things that i didn't know were on her plate and so as we try to i thought i was busy uh as we try to get a handle on things like afm relative to a national level, I think we have to recognize we all have different roles to play. And one of the things I've come to learn about the CDC is the initial caution uh, that was exercised in some respects around ascribing etiologies uh, comes from a you know, balanced view of not uh, simultaneously wanting to be aggressive at getting at an answer, but not uh, prematurely or incorrecting ascribing causation. Um, the official uh statements of the CDC and I have not always agreed and that's okay um, I think where we've gotten to today is very clear alignment on uh the science and the needs and and the commitment to doing uh the work that needs to be done for this so so before Dr Patel uh went through the the timeline I just wanted to jump in and offer that because I know the the parents Uh, And the clinicians have shared frustration over the years and rightfully so, but I think we need to be very cautious uh, With emotionally assigning blame uh, when in reality uh, Part of the issues are are structural and resource and then part of the issues have just been this has been a new entity for all of us So with that as a backdrop, I didn't mean to cut off dr. Patel, but I'll, I'll ask her to chime in
3: Uh, Dr. Greenberg, this is uh, Dr. Ruth and I actually am going to cut Dr. Patel off as well. I just wanted to jump in because what you said is a really good segue into a question we get a lot asked a lot here at CDC and it's also a question we're constantly asking ourselves and that is why hasn't CDC acknowledged that EBD-68 is the cause of these AFM outbreaks like others across uh, the country have done and, and when will we? Uh, So this is an important question to address, and um, I do want to um, say, frankly, that CDC is a conservative institution. We have a very high standard for declaring the cause of an outbreak, whether it be AFM or other outbreaks we investigate, like foodborne investigations that may have downstream implications and effects. That said, we do acknowledge, and I really hope this was visible in our recent Vital Signs um, MMWR that enteroviruses, including EBD68, are leading candidates for the cause of this new AFM epidemiology that we've been seeing since 2014. Our research at CDC is really heavily focused on addressing some of the remaining questions we have about EBD68, and we're engaged with other academic colleagues to address some of these questions. Um, We really like to pin down the association between EBD68 and the reported cases of AFM. Still, we do know that there are multiple viruses that cause AFM. And one question that remains is whether there's actually a single virus causing these outbreaks every other year or whether there are multiple viruses. For example, just in 2018, we do know that there was another enterovirus, eba 71 that caused an outbreak in Colorado that did have AFM cases associated with it. So while we do focus on enteroviruses and ebd 68 as the leading hypothesis, we want to keep other avenues of research open so as not to miss any.
4: Thanks, Janelle, and, and this is Manisha. And what I'd like to just add to that, though, is that you know one of the, the biggest lessons we learned was that AFM was not like many of our nationally notifiable diseases, where we are primarily engaging with health departments, mainly for surveillance, and certainly a partner organizations we liaise with and outreach activities um, to the public, but AFM is different. And, um, This illness will require active involvement from public health and other federal agencies, but also academia, clinicians, and parents to move that needle forward. And it will take a village. And I I don't think we were fast enough when uh, with engaging with all the right partners um, from the beginning. And I particularly will say that um, we weren't fast enough with parents. And we know that they have a tremendous amount of knowledge uh, about this illness because they're living with it every day. And so while there are certainly a number of challenges that we have with public health, there are certainly a lot of um, lessons that we've learned over the past couple of years on how we really actually do it. And it's gonna take multiple people working together, um, moving forward um, in providing all of their separate inputs, whether it's public health, whether it's basic science research, whether it's knowing sort of how to culturally be sensitive with families, all of that together is gonna to take a lot of effort, like Ben was saying, um, and, and a lot of activity engagement for and, and I'll just end with saying that we're all in, um, CDC is all in to, to sort of work on this um, really big issue.
1: Dr. Patel, thank you so much. And Dr. Ruth as well and, and Dr. Greenberg too for uh, that intro. Uh, I can certainly hear it and I know that there is a commitment there and that you've you've recognized where things haven't gone as they may have, and that we're committed to to changing it and making things better and, and moving forward. So thank you so much. Um, Moving forward into some of the questions we received for our community. Um, we often hear about this being polio-like um, with AFM. And one of the first questions we received is, why is this not called polio? The three polio strains, and Dr. Ruth, you had mentioned D68, A71, but also the Coxsackie the virus are all in the same virus species and all have caused identical damage. Can you elaborate a little bit as to why it's not called polio?
3: Rebecca, this is Janelle. Thank you so much. It's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, We were actually just discussing this very question with Dr. Priya Dougal yesterday. Uh, She's the geneticist from Johns Hopkins and was visiting us to talk through some of her work on AFM genetics. I think about this in three main ways. So three major reasons that we're not calling AFM polio and we're trying to stay away from the words polio-like. The first reason is historic. The second has to do with cause. And then the third has to do with clinical presentation, which then leads to treatment and prevention. So you're correct in saying that both the disease caused by polio virus and AFM share that same spinal cord lesion. The lesion is called poliomyelitis, um, and that's a combination of two Greek words, gray for polio um, and marrow, the myelos means marrow. So taken together, poliomyelitis means an inflammation in the gray matter of the spinal cord, which is true of both AFM and of polio patients. However, in the historical context, poliomyelitis came to mean the disease associated with poliovirus. And this can be confusing because we know poliomyelitis caused by poliovirus has been eradicated from the United States. We test every stool sample from AFM patients submitted to us for poliovirus, and they've all tested negative. Secondly, we know that other viruses besides poliovirus can cause AFM. Like I just mentioned, non-polio enteroviruses And Viruses like West Nile can have the same poliomyelitis clinical presentation. Therefore, we use the term AFM to encompass all of those different causes um, of those gray matter spinal lesions. And then finally, the disease caused by poliovirus and cases of AFM that we see in these peak years, peak even years, um, they do differ clinically. So, while polio caused predominantly lower limb weakness in AFM patients, we see predominantly upper limb weakness, and this difference is important because I think it has implications for both medical and public health interventions. We're certainly learning um, through our network of clinical colleagues that early acute rehabilitation can be useful for AFM, and we also know that polio vaccination doesn't prevent AFM. So the distinctions and how we talk about it are incredibly important as we
4: continue to learn more about the disease.
1: Thank you
2: so much. If I can jump in there just to to add to that, because we we get this question all the time and and, um, Janelle's answer I think is perfect, but just to draw an analogy that that people can use, um, on any given night in the emergency room, two patients could be admitted with trauma, to their spine. One could be a gunshot and one could be a stabbing. They're both trauma to the spine, but we separate them out. And so even though the enteroviruses and polioviruses are in the same family of viruses, it is medically important to separate out uh, the different ones because, as Janelle said, what we do for patients and what we do in research for gunshots and stab wounds are different, and even though they each lead to the same trauma.
0: Great, thanks, uh, Dr. Greenberg, uh, for that as well. Um, so, moving on from the discussion about, you know, polio and the relationship to AFM, um, I'd like to to jump to uh, us talking about reporting and, and follow up. Um, so, if we could talk a little bit about why reporting is not mandatory, you know, what this means um, for AFM specifically.
4: So this is, this is
0: Manish and I'll jump in and maybe uh, Janelle can add, or
4: Ben, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts in terms of uh, notifiability and mandatory reporting. Um, Let me just first start though, by describing um, how the reporting flow works when you have a disease that's nationally notifiable. And so uh, it kind of is in four segments. You have First the patient needs to present to the healthcare facility or provider. Um, And then the provider needs to suspect the disease um, in that patient. Um, And then the provider then would report that uh, particular case to a health department or local health department, and then the health department reports to to CDC. And so um, even though, and I don't know if uh, um, many of you that are listening on this podcast have heard this already, but even though the proposal to make AFM nationally notifiable. It was not passed. Um, It was not passed at the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists annual meeting that occurs in June every year. Um, And one of the the key reasons it didn't pass is because we currently don't have a confirmatory test uh, for AFM, which is one of CDC's priority research areas. So even though it's not nationally notifiable, all states currently do have some type of requirement for clinicians for reporting cases um, with with, um, AFM. So either they explicitly say that uh, the patient has AFM or they may have provisions for reporting cases that have um, uh, acute flaccid paralysis uh, and no other apparent cause, or they have provisions that require reporting of say like a new or emerging Uh, condition of public health importance like AFM. So if we go back to the reporting flag I just described, um, one of the things that we did after 2016 was, after the 2016 outbreak, was to help build some additional infrastructure for health departments. And, And we called it the hybrid approach internally, and so that individual states could conduct case reviews and enlist neurologists in their own states to work alongside us um, and the expert, the, the neurology expert panel to confirm cases. And we felt this was really important because not only would it help increase knowledge and awareness of the health departments that we we're working with directly, but there would be also some indirect effects because health departments would then be sort of armed with knowledge when they engage with their uh, community providers. Um, so even though there's not the even though AFM is not nationally unifiable right now, there's excellent bi-directional communication with health departments and CDC. So one of our main goals with the AFM program in when we look at where the gaps are in the reporting flow is the strengthening of the frontline providers. So we obviously have neurologists and infectious disease physicians that may be more acutely aware, but we're talking about you know, the pediatrician and the the urgent care provider that um, a patient might present to. And so we do do this by working with partner organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, Um, there's also the Society for uh, Pediatric Urgent Care, there's emergency rooms uh, uh, associations we work with, Um, having provider materials available on our website, like job aids on how to collect specimens properly, and then how to report those cases to health departments. And then one of our newest tools um, that um, we are partnering with TMA on is the 24 seven consultation um, service tool that is on the CDC website. And we also pushed it out through some of our communication channels, well, many of our communication channels. And maybe I could turn it over to Ben um, if you want to talk about that service and how it actually works and how it came to be.
2: Um, yeah, I'm happy to, and and just before commenting on that, I, I just want to stress for all the listeners one, one of the most critical uh, portions of your answer that gets, I think, lost sometimes, and that is the Centers for Disease Control does not decide what is nationally a mandatory reportable condition, it is work with the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. And so there, there's been a lot of feedback sent to the CDC on making this national reportable, and uh, to be clear to everyone, I assumed the same five years ago. I, I assumed that Dr. Patel could sign a form and make something nationally reportable, and I had to be educated on the process, that it is this group of state and territorial epidemiologists. Um, to that end around reporting, just so families and parents know, what I have found is the the CDC, uh, our partners there, have been uh, working diligently with us to see how could we make this uh, nationally reportable, and if it's not, as it wasn't, passed by the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, short of that, what can we do to make this work? I, I'm of the mindset that I want this reportable nationally. Uh, I, I think when we look at how reportable conditions occur in the United States, there's room for improvement in a lot of different ways. But since we have not succeeded in getting that group, the, the state and territorial epidemiologists uh, to support the proposal, as Dr. Patel said, uh, we are trying to um, fill in the gaps and make sure every case gets counted. And what was referred to was a service that's uh, being offered uh, via a partnership, via the TMA, uh, our center here at UT Southwestern, and the Transverse Myelitis Center at Johns Hopkins, where now any clinician nationally can go online, fill out a very simple form, and within 24 hours get a real-time consultation with myself Uh, or Dr. Pardot at Hopkins, uh, or one of our TM experts at the centers, and uh, support for both TM and specifically AFM. And as part of that process, we have it protocoled to remind clinicians uh, that these numbers need to be reported to their state and local health departments and are there to prompt them. Um, It is uh, phenomenal that even with the amount of press and, and attention this has gotten, I'd say about half the time when I'm talking with clinicians around the country who have a possible case, uh, they may not have yet reported it to uh, public health uh, officials. So Dr. Patel is right. Even uh, if this became nationally reportable, we still have a long way to go to reminding our clinician colleagues when managing a case that they need to alert others for public health reasons.
1: Thank you, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Patel. That. uh is incredible information i did not realize myself that um, it is not the cdc that makes this a nationally rape reportable um, disease so to kind of elaborate on that a little bit more how and do you anticipate that it ever would be um, something that would be mandatory um, to report and for families that are advocating and continue to advocate for that, what suggestions are there um, if you are aware for them to 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 reach those individuals who would make that decision
2: yes yeah, so i'm I'm going to give an unofficial answer because um, i'm I'm uh, not sure in terms of uh, my colleagues at CDC and about advocacy avenues around this, but but the as a a uh, person in the clinical trenches, what I wouldn't encourage families to do who feel uh, that this should be reportable is take advantage of uh, your uh, representatives and your leaders. We we have found uh, partners in Congress who are have been frankly uh moved by the personal stories of families. Uh if I speak to members of Congress about needs for resources for research or public health, it it only goes so far because as we all know, we have a lot of needs in the country. When families engage uh with elected representatives is is much more impactful. And and the TMA has has worked hard to organize and and work with um Uh, TM and AFM families to help bridge that gap, and uh, our AFM parents group has done an amazing job of uh, integrating with Congress and trying to get advocacy there. That is one place where uh, voices can be heard. Now, they have no mandate over the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, but I'm willing to bet that if there's uh, pushes for this coming from Congress, they they have a say uh, and a voice that would be meaningful i am uh, other than finding who your state's representative is to the council and and sending them a letter or an email making uh uh your thoughts heard my understanding is that uh we would need to overhaul uh how the council assesses what should be nationally reportable or not, and frankly, invest the resources. One of the, de- the factors in the decision um, for the council is uh, they're stretched very thin. Every time we add a nationally reportable condition, there is an investment that has to go with that. It's, it's not a cost-free event. There's a significant amount of work that goes into it. And these are the same individuals who we are asking to monitor for bioterrorism. These are the same individuals who will get up at uh, 3 a.m. on Christmas Eve because there's a suspected case of Ebola somewhere. These are the same individuals who are managing uh, measles outbreaks uh, across the country. And so we we can't continue to ask our public health infrastructure uh, to be perfect and do all things at all times if we're not willing to invest. And the people who have the uh, most meaningful voices in setting that investment priority for the country are families that are affected. And so so I encourage everybody to think broader than AFM and think about this purely from the public health perspective and talk to congressional representatives about this is an area of infrastructure in the country uh, that we never fully appreciate uh, until we absolutely need it, and sometimes that's too late. And so we, we need to get vocal about pushing for resources to do this. If there are resources allotted, I actually think the council may consider this differently, um, but that's just a guess on my part.
1: Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, for for that. And I wanted to ask too, because I know it, it can sometimes become interchangeable or confused, but can you or one of the other physicians clarify the difference between what is mandatory reporting and what is nationally notifiable?
4: Yes, this is Manisha, I can can do that. So there's nationally notifiability is basically a passive surveillance system. And so even diseases that we have that are eliminated in the US like measles or polio are nationally notifiable, but there's actually not any mandate to report um, these diseases even to CDC. The mandatory requirement, which requires state statutes and sort of the legal components of of their sort of public health regulations, that's where the mandatory component um, actually comes into play. And so, we actually, even even with CDC, we use different language where providers are required to report to local health departments and health departments then notify CDC. And Janelle, I don't know if you wanted to. No, I think that sums it up well.
0: Great, thank you for that clarification. Um, so moving on, um, I'd like for us to discuss about a follow-up specifically. So. Um, does the CDC currently or state health departments follow up with all patients um, or, you know, if they do, how, how long does this follow up occur for?
3: Gigi, thanks. This is Janelle and I'll take that question. Um, So, you know, first I'll say that I think this is an area that we could have done better in previous years. Uh, Long-term outcomes of AFM patients are incredibly important for our understanding of this disease. And I think Um, We recognized that last year we needed to be doing more to really understand long-term outcomes across our national um, confirmed cases. So we have implemented a long-term follow-up project. We are now interviewing all confirmed and probable cases from 2018 with a standardized questionnaire to be able to track um, outcome measures um, over time. outcome measures are going to be collected at two months, six months and 12 months post limb weakness onset. Right now we're starting with the 2018 cases. I think, you know, there, and Ben can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a lot of changes that do take place from onset of limb weakness through that first year of follow-up and we would like to understand that better. I think based on the results and the data that we um, receive from these interviews, uh, we may decide uh, to look back further. One other thing that we are doing um, is partnering with the National Institutes of Health. And again, Ben can elaborate on this to conduct a natural history study. This will be a prospective study moving forward. And it's scheduled to start in the fall of this year that will enroll patients with limb onset. And that study will follow them very specifically, um, both with clinical examinations and neurologic examinations for 12 months um, after their illness begins. So we're hoping that that combination, both that natural history study and then our larger overall um, outcomes with our national um, AFM group will help us understand a little bit better um, what those outcomes are.
2: and so, if I may just chime in there. So the the, the efforts around outcomes are definitely picking up speed. But but um, to the members of the, the TMA and our AFM community uh, at this date, what what we we're happy to see um, the increased data collection around outcomes, but they are still limited in terms of of time frame. And as a, a clinician in the field. What what we really want to see ultimately are the two, three, four, five, six-year outcomes for several reasons. One is uh, to get rid of the myth that uh, people can't or don't recover. We are seeing very slow but meaningful recoveries two, three, four, five years out. And anecdotally, I feel it's related to the level of uh, intensity of rehabilitation that goes on, but I can't prove that statement yet. Until we collect the data, and um, our uh, we had submitted a, a, a grant request to the NIH for a long-term outcome study, and got notified yesterday. Unfortunately, that we were not being funded for it. Uh, the longitudinal study that is launching is still looking at uh, shorter-term outcomes, a year, and this is a major uh, gap in. Um, uh, our data right now and frankly this is where the TMA comes in and we're going to be relying on the community and the partnership with the TMA to help with uh, not just data collection but with raising the funds to appropriately do data collection across the
0: hundreds
2: of families uh, who have been affected by this relative to uh, outcomes and long-term treatments that they have had access to so we can correlate outcomes with what people are doing and so as we're uh, trying to raise the resources to do this right now we're we're still stuck with shorter term outcomes um, but we'd love to prove to the world that uh, with interventions uh, our kiddos can continue to make progress
1: thank you again for that information um- I'd like to move on and ask a question about the recent MMWR that was uh, that was published and the statistics on that report. It had been questioned uh, that there were 231. Sp- MRIs that were performed on confirmed cases, yet there were 233 that were confirmed. I believe that has changed, but I just want to clarify that um, with, with Dr. Ruth or Dr. Patel and also ask about the definitive criteria that is used by the CDC to confirm these cases.
3: Rebecca, thanks. This is Janelle and I can clarify that. It just goes to show no matter how often you look over your data, uh, sometimes you miss something. And uh, that indeed was an error in the table. Um, when we went back and looked to see what cases uh, those, those two were that did not have spinal MRIs uh, conducted, we actually found that they did and that it just was an error in data entry. So we are now reporting that um, all confirmed cases did have a spinal MRI performed, 233 out of 233, and that um, erratum um, will go uh, will be published by MMWR on August 9th. So the table will be corrected and a, um, a, a new uh, uh, manuscript will be published on August 9th. So um, thanks for that question and giving us the opportunity to correct that over the podcast. Um, You also mentioned uh, the CDC case definition. And um, I did want to take some time with this question because it's a good one. And it is actually one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. I think there is a lot of confusion between CDC's surveillance case classification and a diagnosis of AFM by the clinical team. Um, And so I'd like to explain um, how I see that difference and then either uh, Manisha or Ben uh, would love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, So first and foremost, uh, we know that AFM is a spectrum of clinical illness. I think all of us would agree that some children have a greater degree of paralysis than others. um, and, And we see really a full spectrum. It is incredibly important for clinicians to recognize AFM across that entire spectrum and get patients into care quickly. We never want to discount a case of AFM. It's incredibly important for us that AFM is recognized by those you know, early clinicians, patients get hospitalized, respiratory status gets monitored because we do know um, patients can decompensate quite quickly, particularly um, in their respiratory status. So the diagnosis of AFM should be made quickly and it should be made in conjunction both with the clinical team and experts in the field, such as neurologists and infectious disease docs, um, as well as now this new um, TMA 24-hour consultation that um, has been alluded to already. Um, It's important to have that diagnosis made so that medical management can be initiated, including, um, as I've said before, that acute rehabilitation. Surveillance case classification, on the other hand, is a much different entity, it takes much longer. I think as many of you know, it can take weeks to months to get that case classification back. Um, And that's because the purpose of surveillance is really different than the purpose of diagnosis. We need a standardized case definition to compare trends across years and trends across different states. And the challenge of creating a case definition for AFM is that we don't have a simple diagnostic test. It would be great if every patient came to us with an MRI showing a clear anterior horn cell lesion. Um, That would be diagnostic of um, AFM, but we don't. That, That just doesn't happen. So instead, we created a surveillance case definition unique enough to count AFM cases, but also not broad enough to include things that are not AFM, like transverse myelitis. Each case, the medical records and images um, for each patient are reviewed by a panel of neurologic experts, and even they have difficulty sometimes distinguishing AFM from these other illnesses. And so you're correct, and and parents, you know, that say, well, my child wasn't counted um, in the CDC surveillance case definition. You're you're correct that right now our case definition is strict. It may not capture all cases of AFM at this time, but For us, it's really necessary to use this clear definition for standardization and to help us understand more about the risk factors and causes of AFM. As we learn more, we'll definitely revise and revisit that case definition just like we did this year, making modifications um, hopefully um, down the road to be more inclusive. But One goal I think that we really have, and that was one of the reasons to put out the vital signs was to make sure that clinicians know that our surveillance case classification is not a substitute for diagnosis, um, nor should um, it, it um, change the diagnosis. And um, we want to continue to emphasize that point with clinicians moving forward.
4: Yeah, that's right. This this is Manish, and I just wanted to add that uh, just in general with case definitions, if you look at you can find this on the web, looking at different nationally notifiable diseases, that case definitions are purposefully kept simple. And and that's so that providers, across a vast array of expertise, um, know who they should report. And so if they see a patient meeting simple criteria, they would make sure that they're contacting their health departments. Now, on the flip side, we know that patients, and I, I say patients, Um, not cases, which is the word we use for surveillance, but patients with AFM are complex and um, they have different presentations, different test results, recovery periods, and degrees of paralysis. So kind of what uh, Dr. Ruth was referring to is that it really should not be superseding the diagnosis and the ultimate aim is to make sure patients are managed quickly and um, with the best medical care they can, um, but that we're able to capture trends across time so we can identify risk factors and i think that some of the of the accumulation of data that we've had since we started surveillance in 2014 has been incredibly instructive including revising the case definition identifying risk factors knowing where gaps in our knowledge base are from a public health perspective
3: Minister, uh, and i'll add one more thing to that um, i did um, have a conversation a very heartfelt conversation with a parent uh, the other day who talked about CBC undercounting AFM? And um, I absolutely agree that I think we can do a better job when we publish our surveillance numbers and when we talk about our surveillance numbers to put those into context. So I think that's something that the call is very instructive. I think I learned a lot from our conversation, and that's something that we'll really
0: consider moving forward. Great, thank you for that. Um, and then uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, transverse myelitis and, and differentiating between AFM and transverse myelitis. Um, but what if a case involves both gray and white matter? How are these cases classified? Are they both AFM and TM, or just one or the other? Um, and this might be a question also for Dr. Greenberg as well.
3: I was just going to say this is Janelle. Yep. Dr. Greenberg, take it away.
2: <laughs> <coughs> yeah. So. Uh, the way the definition is written, and frankly, the way we operationalize things clinically, at least I can speak to my center and I'd say the majority of centers I work with, is if, if there is a predominance of gray matter involvement, um, it will be classified uh, as AFM. And what we're seeing um, in our data from the capture study and what we've seen just clinically is if you take the definition, where where a child has a flaccid limb gray matter involvement and you don't use anything else to, to exclude patients, uh, it can be up to a half of patients who have uh, some level of significant white matter involvement. And so um, those are uh, included, they get reported as AFM. What, what's interesting about this uh, just scientifically is um, if you look back to uh, old literature on the poliovirus causing gray matter damage in the spinal cord, uh, and this predates MRI, this this goes back to the you know 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, there were a significant percent of uh, poliomyelitis patients who would have some evidence of white matter involvement, and so. When, when a virus, If this is a virus infecting the gray matter of the cord, um, it's not unusual for there to be secondary damage to the white matter. And that's, that's a theory we're operating under, at least at our center. I'm not speaking for, for a national organization at this point. Uh, but if they have flaccid weakness and they have predominant gray matter involvement, they would be AFM, irregardless of how much white matter there is.
1: Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, really appreciate that. Um, A couple of questions that have come up from families is their concern about how the CDC discusses recovery in children with AFM, um, often making it seem like recovery is better for them when there are still so many kids who are fully paralyzed and vent dependent and not really paying as much or seeming to pay as much attention to the respiratory distress that is associated with AFM. Would either Dr. Ruth or Dr. Patel like to comment on that at all?
2: And and actually, if I can chime in uh, just before them, I I hate cutting them off, but I I just um, uh, want to point out just one aspect to this that's important to keep in mind from, uh, where I sit on the clinical side, uh, there is an extraordinary spectrum of injury and recovery and uh, frankly speaking there's an an interesting phenomenon we've seen this in other conditions where uh, individuals and and families of individuals who are more severely affected and and this would make sense uh, tend to uh, to take advantage of uh, not take advantage or take uh, part in community-based resources uh, support groups organizations the TMA AFM parents group etc and for families where kids had a milder case and recovered and have little to no deficits and are, are going on uh, it's kind of a bad dream and it's past them and they they've moved on and so if if we look at um, uh within uh, social media organizations that are supporting families in need very appropriately, I think we get a little bit of a skewed view in severity. Um, I I think it's uh, more often very severe than not, but it, it doesn't take into account the fact that there are patients who are recovering that may not be as vocal or as visible. And so when we work on language about recovery, and and this isn't necessarily just a CDC uh, issue, I I take ownership of this because I'm uh, speaking about this and we're writing about this, Um, uh, there is a spectrum. There are absolutely uh, just heartbreaking and gut-wrenching cases of children who have been devastated by this condition with significant impacts on respiratory status uh, motor status, swallowing status, um, and it, it is, uh, a huge, uh, area of need where we need an investment to improve our outcomes for, for every child. Um, but when we talk about the language that's being used nationally as kind of talking about this spectrum, it's not to take away from the significant number of children who have had just devastating events from this condition, uh, it's meant to recognize the fact that there are milder cases, and and the reason that's there is is not just about recognition and science. It's also, frankly, around making sure clinicians uh, keep their eyes open for it, even in children with mild weakness. We've had um, some cases, and I, and I know Dr. Pardo has had some cases where uh, children were diagnosed with. Uh, pinched nerves or very mild musculoskeletal issues. And for a variety of processes later, we found out, no, they actually had a mild version of AFM. And if we're gonna solve this issue from a public health perspective, epidemiologic perspective, virology perspective, we need to know all cases, mild and severe. And so I'll I'll, I'll be quiet now and let my colleagues at CDC speak to this, but um, it's factually correct that there is a spectrum of cases.
3: Ben, thanks so much. This is Janelle, and um, I I think everything you said um, captured the point perfectly, but I definitely do want to say on behalf of the AFM team here at CBC, we never, ever want to minimize the seriousness or severity of AFM. Um, I think that's been one wonderful thing about our relationship with the Parents Association, is being able to hear the stories and learn firsthand about families' experiences with AFM. I've also been very lucky, um, both in 2016 and and just recently in 2019, have had the opportunity to go do some interviews with families and absolutely um, have seen uh, the firsthand effects of that continued paralysis and need for respiratory support on the family dynamic. Um, Yes, we do know, from our 2018 data that was published in the MMWR about 27 percent of children um, do suffer some respiratory distress um, with their illness and the majority of those do require mechanical ventilation so this is not you know this is not minimal this is definitely um, invasive uh, procedures to help children breathe. thing that we are doing to try to understand uh, risk factors for that severe type of illness is to do these interviews with our 2018 patients and their families to really understand uh, their seeking of medical care and uh, what they went through in the hospital. Um, Again, all of the other questions that we tend to ask about risk factors to really try to understand this more fully. Thanks. Thank
1: Thank you. Both Dr. Ruth and, and Dr. Greenberg for those very thoughtful responses. I know it is it is not easy to to have to look at at so much and and so much severity in in some of our children as well. So I sincerely appreciate uh, again your thoughtful responses. Um, it kind of leads into another question that has been arising and why we're generally only referring to it um, as limb weakness and not paralysis when it comes to AFM symptoms. Is there a particular reason why it's being categorized as as limb weakness or watching for limb weakness versus paralysis?
2: Yeah, I'm going to jump in on that one because it's it's for a very specific reason and it's not to... um, make it sound milder than it is. It's it's specifically around making sure clinicians and parents um, recognize even the mildest of cases or the early symptoms. So w- limb weakness includes paralysis. So paralysis is the most severe limb weakness. But if if we only use the term paralysis, then there are a lot of kids with AFM who had weakness, but not to the stage of paralysis who might not get recognized or counted. And so, so it's a, um, a clinically and scientifically accurate term. It is not meant to uh, cast an aspersion around uh, how mild or severe the condition is. It's there to raise a, uh, awareness to catch cases early.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. I know that
1: it's always good to hear the clinical side of things and where that is coming from, so thank you for that clarification. Um, Another question about treatments and and symptoms. Obviously, we are urging that when these symptoms are presented that uh, they get treatment ASAP. Is there research being done or data being collected by the CDC? about the treatments that work to stop the damage being done in the acute phase of AFM. I don't know, Dr. Greenberg, if you'd like to um, speak to that?
2: So I I can speak to the non-CDC efforts and and I'm aware of the CDC efforts and they are there. We we both, our group with the CAPTURE study and um, the CDC through... Uh, the Voluntary Reporting System and then their tracking um, of cases and data collection of cases, we are all collecting data on what therapies were um, provided to patients uh, because there is not a a, uh, clear guide yet on how to select patients for different therapies. So we're, we're just collecting the data of what patients are getting and then constantly looking at it as the data set grows to look for any patterns. Um, We'll be putting out a publication this year in terms of our experience uh, around different therapies, but it's um, obviously uh, smaller numbers in the whole cohort nationally. And I know this has been a priority for the CDC uh, to collect uh, data on who got corticosteroids, who got plasmapheresis, who got IVIG, who got a variety of other things and then determine whether or not uh, therapies seem to be doing uh, help or harm. Uh, I will, uh, before turning things over, just state for for everyone, these are incredibly difficult data sets to understand because these are um, uh, retrospective studies. And so the people getting certain therapies at my center uh, may be getting them because they saw me, and people getting therapy with uh, you know, I'll say Carlos Pardo because he's a good friend and he does a wonderful job. He may have a slightly different take on things and so how you compare data sets is extremely difficult and fraught with risk. And so we're trying to be very cautious to not over interpret our data relative to response to therapy. I have my biases uh, and I admit my biases around uh, therapeutic interventions. Uh, the CDC appropriately uh, is taking a non-biased approach. They're they're there to keep me honest um, and take an agnostic approach to collecting all the data and seeing where the statistics lie. But it, it, it's been a priority for us as a center and from my understanding for my colleagues at the CDC as well. But I'll, I'll let uh, Manisha and, and uh, Janelle comment.
3: Ben, thanks. I appreciate you highlighting the difficulties with this type of data collection. Uh, You're right. We are. um, We do request medical records on every patient that is reported as a suspected uh, case of AFM to CDC. And we do a thorough chart abstraction of that medical information. And that chart abstraction contains questions about what treatments patients received, the duration of the treatments, et cetera. Um, Again, for us, it's been difficult to link any treatment to outcomes uh, because of the reasons Ben talked about. Um, there's just a lot of heterogeneity in the way treatments are given, uh, the way um, neurologic exams are conducted, and so um, it's hard to make any strong conclusions. One thing that we are doing with our academic colleagues across the United States is to, we formed a work group to work on some clinical considerations for AFM. And part of this work group is to look at the literature every year um, and and to just liaise with each other to see if anything new is coming out in terms of treatment for AFM. Um, Those considerations are published on the web at this time Uh, We don't really recommend for or against any of the current treatments that are being used for AFM, but certainly if anything were to change, um, again, we have now, I think, a more robust network of clinicians that talk to each other on a fairly regular basis. If something was to change, we would hear about that and, and update those
0: considerations right away. Great. Thank you. Um, and as we're getting to the end of our time, I just wanted to talk a bit about uh, the seven hospitals and the surveillance, enhanced uh, AFM surveillance. Um, how do these hospitals work with the public, with the CDC? Um, you know, are these hospitals where treatment should be sought? And are cases more likely to be reported if someone's treated at these hospitals? Uh, Dr. Ruth or Dr. Patel?
4: Yeah, this is, this is Dr. Manisha, and I can take that question. Um, So, one of our key questions is how does local circulation of enteroviruses enteroviruses affect risk of AFM for that community? So for instance, say if we had increased EBD-68 activity in Atlanta, does that mean there would be increased cases of AFM in Atlanta as well? And, And we know that's what happened in 2014 and 2018 nationally where there was increased EBD-68 associated respiratory illnesses um, that were correlating with our AFM outbreaks. But we also had reports from um, more localized areas showing that they would have increased evd 68 activity, but for example, no AFM cases. And so we wanted to better understand this um, and what the risk was and what that correlation between enteroviruses and AFM would be. So the seven pediatric hospitals are are part of CDC's new vaccine surveillance network, NBSN. And if you actually Google CDC and NBSN, you can find a list of the the seven uh, institutions that are involved in that. And these seven sites have been active and operating for almost uh, 10 years. And um, they've received uh, funding from CDC to conduct um, active surveillance for gastrointestinal as well as respiratory illnesses. Um, and we will now conduct a- enhanced AFM surveillance at those sites as well. So these sites were specifically chosen for their capacity to do active viral surveillance, um, but I also want to say there are other institutions that conduct strong viral surveillance as well that are not part of NBSN. Uh, and the NBSN sites all have experienced clinicians that are excellent places to receive care, but they are just a small number of the many hospitals that around the country that are providing excellent care and expertise to AFM patients.
3: And and I'll just jump in and quickly say, um, I I hope that cases are not more likely to be reported from one of those seven hospitals. Really one thing that we've really tried to emphasize in the last month is um, early recognition of AFM and reporting. Uh, That has gone out over our vital signs blast, and we are going to continue to work on that in the coming months. Our communications office has made contact with over 23 different professional organizations around the United States, and we are going to continue to work with them to make sure that every case gets reported to the health department.
1: Thank you, Dr. Patel and Dr. Ruth for giving us some additional information on those sites. Uh, we're actually at our hour mark now, and we certainly want to respect your time and schedules, but before we formally end our podcast today, is there anything that either one of the three of you would would like to add? Um, unfortunately, we're not able to get to all of the questions we, we had submitted, um, but we'd love to hear um, any additional bits of information or anything you'd like to share with us before we wrap it up?
2: Um, I'll chime in and just uh, say thank you to the TMA for hosting this, my colleagues at the CDC for taking part. I hope our listeners recognize um, uh, what a unique event this is to have uh, our partners at the CDC uh, taking time out for uh, public education in, in collaboration with a nonprofit patient advocacy group. This is, We are very appreciative of their time. And I'll also remind our family members that uh, often you hear about cases before anybody else through Facebook, Twitter, friends, you get contacted. If you hear about cases, you have a role to play in public health. Have those individuals who are hospitalized ha- instruct their clinicians to reach out either through the TMA and the consultation line or through state and local health departments. You you have a very strong voice and, and uh, power to make sure these cases get reported, get followed, and kids get the care they need. So we're looking to partner up with all of you to make sure this happens as well as it can.
3: Uh, thanks, Ben. This is Janelle, and I just, again, wanted to give a real um, word of thanks to uh, both the TMA, Gigi, and Rebecca. You both have been wonderful. Um, helping us organize uh, this podcast. This was a real opportunity for us to connect to our primary audience, which is really the public and parents of children affected by AFM. And so we are just really thankful for the opportunity to speak speak frankly about the work that we
0: do. Thank you. Thank you all so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it and look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
4: you all. Bye.